phase. So I never asked myself, are they ready? It was, this is a necessary conversation because it's already a part of their lives. And I felt it was incumbent upon me to share my experience with them so they could know me as their father better, but they could also know the experience of people of color and how they move through the world, both for their siblings, right? My kids who are black kids and for my white kids to have empathy and allyship and understanding and not just be blissfully ignorant, I suppose. Welcome to the Sensory Wise Solutions podcast for parents where parents can get real, actionable strategies to support kids with sensory processing disorder. I'm Laura, OT and mom to Liliana, a sensory-sensitive kid who inherited my anxiety and my love for all things Disney. Consider me your new OT mom bestie. I know my stuff, but I also know what it's really like in the trenches of parenting a child with sensory processing disorder. Okay, mom, enough about me. Let's start the podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome for a bonus episode on the podcast. If you can't hear how big I'm smiling, then turn the volume up because I am so, so, so excited, so excited, so thrilled to finally get to say, utter out loud, I am a published author and my book is now available to purchase. If you have not been following me on Instagram or on my email list, then you might not know, but I wrote a children's book called A Kid's Book About Neurodiversity. And it, I, I I just, I really, I have no words. I cannot believe I did this. This is a huge pinch me moment. And this is also something that I never dreamt of doing. This was never a lifelong goal of mine. I just knew this message needed to get out there. And it was very timely because this was at the time when my daughter and I really started getting into a Kids Co. book, which if you've never heard of them, that is who I published this book with. They are a kid's book about, and then they make all of these wonderful topics. Uh, they they publish books basically for, for kids, but you read them you read it alongside them as the adult on topics that you want them to learn about, but you don't really know how to talk to them about it, right? So these are like conversation starters. So on this episode today, I am interviewing Jelani Memory. He is the founder and CEO of A Kids Co., which is a media company that creates books and podcasts to help kids and their grownups have meaningful conversations about things that matter. He is also the author of the best-selling book, A Kid's Book About Racism. Mr. Memory is a passionate advocate for diversity, equity, and inclusion, and he believes that all kids deserve to see themselves represented in the stories they read and hear, and that books can be a powerful tool for starting important conversations about race, identity, and social justice. He's been featured in the New York Times, the Washington Post, and NPR. He lives in his hometown, Portland, Oregon, with his wife and six children, and he has a fabulous TED Talk, which I'm going to link in the show notes. You have to go listen to it after you listen to this episode. So I published a book with them and it's called A Kid's Book About Neurodiversity. And really, I wanted to create this book about neurodiversity, not only to help our neurodivergent kids feel seen and represented, like Jelani talks about, um, how they could be represented in a positive light, but also to really, really do the legwork and help educate the greater population, the neurotypical population, about what neurodiversity means to foster more inclusion, to take control of the narrative about neurodiversity and change it more from a conversation centered around ableism and make it more about just differences. Having a different brain is not bad. It's just different. So my vision is for this book to be on the shelves of classrooms, clinics, bedrooms, libraries all over the world so that we can take the pressure off of neurodivergent people to make them act more neurotypical and instead create more opportunities for neurotypical individuals to learn to accommodate and live alongside neurodivergent individuals just as they are. 
So I want to add one little fun fact that I didn't get to share in the episode, but right after we got off, I was like, oh, I forgot to share it. So I'm going to share this tidbit with you, which if you get the book, um, this will help you appreciate the little the little um, Easter eggs of, of butterflies everywhere. Obviously, as the OT butterfly, butterflies are not just like a pretty little thing and just didn't sound cute, which is why I added it to my name. Butterflies actually have a personal meaning to my family. And then of course, symbolically, butterflies represent transformation, the metamorphosis. I consider it the the transformation that I help families go through when they are trying to help support their neurodivergent child. Um, It represents independence. It represents unique beauty and diversity among everyone. But when we were in the middle of the design process for the book, like the um, the design of the cover and the um, little illustrations inside the book, the tiny ones that there are, um, and they were asking for my input, I wanted to give background to why why I wanted butterflies in the book, right? I didn't want to just be this author that was like, can you put like cute little butterflies everywhere? Um, I wanted to explain the meaning of butterflies to me so that <clears throat> that could be represented <clears throat> and illustrated throughout the book. But I also wanted them to understand that it has a deeper meaning to neurodiversity um, and what we're doing here with this mission of having these books. And I came across the actual definition of the butterfly effect, which I knew to some extent was the idea of like a ripple effect, right? You do something and then it like has change. But when I read the definition, it gave me chills and added just an extra layer to my love an appreciation for butterflies. So the definition of the butterfly effect is the idea that small, barely perceptible changes in things can have big, non-linear impacts on a complex system. And really, that is what we're doing here. You might think you're just reading a book to your child or just having a simple conversation in your house and how much change can that have but you are truly helping create a huge impact on the world by reading to them about neurodiversity especially when you're reading it with a neurotypical child you are doing your part to have a wonderful huge positive impact on humanity really and you're helping us make this world a more inclusive neurodiverse affirming place for everybody okay That was a long intro, but as you could tell, I'm so excited. I wanted to set you up for this. So here's a podcast. Enjoy this interview with Jelani Memory, and please go check out my book. There's a link to it in the show notes underneath this episode, and let me know what you think. Hey, Jelani, how are you? I'm doing well. So good to be on. I am so excited that you accepted my invitation to be on this podcast. I had this idea to interview the minute I turned off the TED talk that I watched you on because that Mm. whole presentation just spoke to so many things. And so I'm going to link that talk for people to watch in the show notes if they want to, but it's really an honor to have you on here. And uh, I would love if you could tell everybody a little bit more about how a Kids Co got started. Yeah. Um, well, gosh, uh, you know, in some ways that story starts all the way back to my childhood. I'm the youngest of four kids, um, uh, raised by a single mother. Dad left when I was four and, um, I had a traumatic, chaotic, uh, trauma filled childhood, um, that my mom did the best she could, but wasn't always emotionally available. And dad was nowhere to be seen. And I would witness abuse, domestic violence, you name it, neglect. And, um, I, one thing that I swore to myself when I had my own kids is that I was going to talk to them about everything. Um, because we never had answers from the guilt around us when we were kids. And I wanted my kids to have, that peace of mind, that clarity, that knowledge, um, that sort of inside track, I suppose, on just what was happening um, to satiate their curiosity and to do the one thing that I wish I had. So as a father of six now, um, I have practiced that quite thoroughly. And in trying to practice that the best I could, I wrote a book a book back in 2018 titled The Kid's Book About Racism. Um, and, and this might seem totally ridiculous, but at the time it made 
the most sense in the world. I made it just for my kids. I printed one copy because two didn't make any sense. And it was about being as blunt, straightforward, candid as I could be with my kids so that they could grow into really good humans and so that we could have the most meaningful and amazing and important conversations. Um, and as kids do, when you try and do that, they surprise you with what they come back with. And that was my kids. They were like, dad, this is incredible. You should go make more books on other important topics. And I was like, like what? Divorce, anxiety, depression, love, hate. Uh, I was like, whoa, like literally Mike was like that light bulb sort of, you know, brain exploding emoji. And, and that was the birth of this amazing kids book publisher that talked up to kids and not down to them and made books on the most challenging, empowering and important topics around. So that's, that's the origin story of a kid's go. I love that. And so I want to understand more when you decided to write them or to tell them about this topic of racism, had you already been seeing signs of them asking questions about it? Had you kind of witnessed things around and said, oh, I should probably get ahead of it. How did you know that was the right time to have that talk with them? Yeah. Uh, so I, I, I got married, I had a kid and then got divorced and then got remarried to a wonderful woman who's now my wife, um, who brought along four stepkids, um, four very white stepkids. And, and so the conversation around race, culture, color, and specifically racism started right away. Um, because now these kids had a black dad and, and a black sibling and my wife had a black husband. So it was, it was already immediate and the book was a way to solidify the conversation, to carry it forward. And really just to give my kids permission to go, you can always talk to me about it. You can mm -hmm. always use this word and ask me uncomfortable questions. I wanted them to get comfortable being uncomfortable and, uh, and it sparked new conversations. Cause you'd think, right. If I were, if I was already having the conversation and I wrote the book, that uh, sort of that would be sort of the end of it. And but it sparked all sorts of new ideas, conversations, thoughts, and feelings and experiences that I was not privy to before. And I I still don't know what that is about our books and my book that that does that, the the magic of a children's book where instead of that top-down grown-up to kid sort of learning, it's this third thing that levels the playing field. And I did that with my kids in a really remarkable way. So I never asked myself, are they ready? It wow. was, this is a necessary conversation because it's already a part of their lives. And I felt it was incumbent upon me to share my experience with them so they could know me as their father better, but they could also know the experience of people of color and how they move through the world, both for their siblings, right? My kids who are mm -hmm. black kids and for my white kids mm -hmm. to have empathy and allyship and understanding and not just be blissfully ignorant, I suppose. Mm -hmm. I love what you said about how to teach them how to be comfortable with discomfort, because mm. that is so... That's a really hard thing for a lot of parents, especially in our generation to deal with because I grew up, I'm lucky enough that I, I did not grow up with a lot of adversity. My parents were immigrants, but I never experienced racism particular to me or my family. I never felt mm -hmm. any of it. If it was, I didn't know, but everything outside of that, my parents always sheltered me and made sure I was always happy and distracted me from my feelings and made sure I had mm. everything. And, you know, it's not to say that they were bad parents, but I did not know how to have an uncomfortable feeling or to sit with that. I always waited for someone to make it better for me. And then we surely mm. did not have any conversations about topics that didn't particularly like affect me directly. And so what I love about the books I own, I think probably 10 of them now is that what I know your initial starting was to educate your kids and your particular nuclear family about 
what's going on with their transition in their life and what they might experience, what you have experienced. But I love that you can read these books to kids who don't experience that, but can then grow compassion and empathy and learn Mm -hmm. how to include other people in their personal lives without it. Like you don't have to be affected by racism to talk about it or these other topics. That is huge. And I think parents, caregivers don't think about talking to your kids about those things if it doesn't affect them. Like why bring it up if they aren't aware of it? So what do you say to parents who are thinking like, should I talk to my kids if they're not bringing it up and I don't see it affecting them? Like, do I need to talk to them about racism, about divorce, about gender, about all these things if they don't Mm. see it permeating their lives? What would you say to them? Yeah. Uh, Well, I, um, we teach our kids a lot of things as they grow up um, uh, and, and, and things um, that uh, often don't immediately come up right away. We teach them um, how to speak, how we teach them the ABCs. We teach them how, you know, when I was a kid, it was about writing in cursive italic, right? Um, We also teach them how to share and not be mean and we don't hit and um, we teach them values. And um, it would seem to me, that not teaching kids about racism doesn't isolate them from the effects of racism or even being racist themselves. It just creates a context where they're unaware of its existence and thus more likely to perpetrate or to, um, to continue it. Uh, so I think that's the first thing. And I think the second thing is, um, cause I get this criticism a lot is let kids be kids, just teach them how to respect everyone and it'll never be an issue. Yeah. And I go, well, yeah, let's let kids be kids, which means teaching them things. But I hold that as a high value when it comes to kids. And the second thing is, is yeah, one way to respect people is to not be racist, which requires the learning about racism to know how not to be that. Because there are elements and dynamics historically, socially, culturally that are at play when it comes to racism. Um, because it turns out kids do see color and seeing color is actually okay. It is not a virtue to not see color. Um, and 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 it doesn't come with all the baggage that we as grownups come with the conversation about racism or gender or all those things. Um, kids don't have that baggage. Um, and so they're totally fine and comfortable to talk about it and they have a much better compass and sense of fairness and rightness when it comes to identity, when it comes to race, when it comes to, you know, country of origin, you know, language, you name it. It's, it's us grownups who really get in the way and, and sort of make it problematic. Um, and then I guess, I suppose last is, um, you know, to ask parents sort of back, what are you so afraid of? Mm. What are you worried about? Exactly. You're worried about your kid learning, mm-hmm. learning about other mm-hmm. people and other ideas, right? You're not going to shatter their vision of the world. You're going to help them be more thoughtful, inclusive, empathetic, um, and loving. Yeah. It's almost that thing like you are create, you're adding to the problem or the stigma by keeping it this thing outside of your house that we don't talk about because, yeah. you know, you're, you're just, you're adding more to it. Um, and yeah, I, I think like 90%, if not more of parenthood is really reflecting back on how I was brought up and what does that matter to me? Why is that so triggering to me? I do a lot of work in therapy. Again, I say, again, I did not really grow up with a lot of adversity, but it's still interesting to think of the cycles I'm breaking in terms of how I was raised and how I want to do things mm. differently um, and realizing why something she does or doesn't do triggers me. And why is this so important? I've been in a really big phase of why things are important to me. Why do I care that she is still using her Halloween jammies in like June? Why Mm. why is it such a big deal? Why do we force ourselves to give presents around Mother's Day? Does it mean something to me or would I rather just have this? So I've just been reflecting a lot. And then of course, nowadays, a lot of these conversations are happening, whether or not we are ready to make our kids ready because of social media and everything that's out there. So I think it's even more important for them to hear it from us first, which kindergarten, like I was not ready for how much things she would talk about to me from at kindergarten. I'm like, there's Mm -hmm. no one else. You're in (laughs) kindergarten, like no one's talking to you. And then she would say things and I would think about it and I'm like, okay, 
that so you're hearing that from that family maybe they have older siblings or they have a certain family member who's bringing this in their house and she hears that or they're watching something i cannot protect you in this bubble i cannot mm. control what other people say to you i cannot control really how she even acts i could teach her but the best thing i can do is to give her the knowledge about what this is so she can feel more equipped i feel like to handle these things and to open those conversations yeah 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 100 um uh, one thing that i love about the books and that we talked about early on when we were when we were um working on the kids book about neurodiversity was how all of the books are limited in their illustration. You really, really tell mm. the story through the different design and the wording and how, you know, you emphasize certain words in bold or big colors. There's little Easter eggs of design throughout the book that still make it engaging, but not distracting. Can you talk mm -hmm. about like, did you already, when you wrote your book about the uh, kids book about racism, did you do that intentionally or was it just like, I don't have the room or space to illustrate. I just want to get the words out there and read it to them. How intentional was this uh, in terms of differentiating it from other children's books? Yeah, well, I'll, I'll give you I'll give you three parts to this answer, and then I'll give you something new that I, I haven't really ever told anybody. I think the first part was um, it wasn't about differentiating anything because there was no idea of my book in the context of other books. It was just a thing I was making for my kids, right? So it's like, mm -hmm you're not comparing a pizza you make at home to like any other pizza. It's just the pizza you're making. And so much of it was made out of convenience for what's the thing that I know how to do. The second thing was it was a very serious topic and I wanted my kids to take it seriously, which means we were going to use the words about the actual thing. And I was going to speak in a way that was clear and concise and frank with my kids which alternately then sort of meant like as soon as you start to throw in characters or silly illustrations or try and make it fun like children's books are, it starts to take away from the seriousness and the thoughtfulness that I think can come when you really engage kids respectfully around the topic. So I just thought I'm not only at more work to do illustrations, it's the wrong idea for this book. Um, I was hugely inspired by um, B.J. Novak's The Book With No Pictures. Um, wonderful book. Amazing book. In fact, I was reading it nonstop to my kids at the time and and both delighted and bemoaning this fact that it, the book doesn't say anything. It offers <laughs> this, you can make a thing in a different way. But I was like, if only this book said something, my kids would have an idea re-implanted every time I read it. Yeah. But all it is is I can make my dad say silly things with this book, right? Cool, fun, fine. Um, and so that inspired part of the making of the book and, and then here's the new part. And I'm, and I'm really just like, I'm, this is kind of just getting discovered in my mind right now is I was trying to simulate that thing that I was already doing with my kids when it comes to a kind of almost like a kind of candor and frankness that almost seems inappropriate. And, and here's what I mean. When I do the kind of frankness that I do with kids around other adults, I can see them visibly gasp. They're like, you said that to a kid. Like, it's almost like, are you allowed to do that? Right. Right. And then in turn, they watch the kid respond and they go, Oh my God, the kid's okay. How is this possible? Um, Because what happens is, is we cover over the discomfort, we cover over the honesty and the truth and the candor and sometimes the painful realities with all this window dressing, so much so that we've lost the very thing we're trying to talk about. There's a reason why we call a sex conversation with kids the birds and the bees. We are unwilling to tell each other the thing we are about to talk about, right? Yeah. Which is mind-boggling so it's no yeah. wonder kids are confused going what are you talking about right? right and so part of the very few words per page this ability to keep sweeping through and these very clear ideas getting communicated was me simulating this very thoughtful conversation that i wanted to have with my kids as straightforward as possible using the actual words 
begging the question, right? A number of times with kids to force them to go, well, what about that? Which the books pre-anticipate that to go, oh, you might be wondering about this. And they answer mm-hmm. those very clear questions. And and somehow I did that with my first book for my kids, if, if only totally being driven by this idea of going, I need to get this right, which means I need to be clear with my kids. I can't have them coming back and going, so is it really that blue dinosaurs don't like red dinosaurs? But wait, <laughs> dinosaurs don't exist. So I guess that's it, right? It's yeah. like we, it's all the window dressing, it's not helpful. And so our books try and do something very different, which turns out is really novel in the children's book industry. Um, and yet, and yet I have talked with professional after professional who is so thankful for the existence of our books, who works with kids, who works in therapeutic contexts, who works as physicians, who works as counselors. And um, that's the work they do is, is engaging with kids in this very clear and respectful way. And, and I think I, I accidented into it. In so much as, um, you know, my trauma-filled childhood, the work that I did to get out of that and to heal from that caused me to go, I will never repeat that with my kids, which means I can't just not do trauma to them. I need to do something else. I need to engage with them in a different way. What do you think it is about books that give us this ability, like this comfort? Because every time I talk to a parent... Um, and like, well, I want to talk to my kid about this. Is there a good book about it? And I always, Mm. my, my first, you know, before I had kids, my first thought was like, oh, you mean like an informational book for you, the parent to understand it? They're like, no, no, no. To read it to my kid. And then now I have Mm. a child. I understand books are just part of life. It's like a bedtime story and they see themselves in the character, but I'm curious what you think it is. Why? It's almost like we rely on the books to do the talking for us as parents when we're uncomfortable like, sure, like, give me the sure. script to talk to my kid, but why do you think we rely on that rather than just sit down, let's talk about racism? Yeah. Right? I, I, uh, well, I, I think there's probably a handful of factors. Let me see if I can get through all of them. I think the first thing is we didn't get those talks when we were kids, so we don't know how to do it. There's no yeah. there's no simulation that we've already gone through where we go, oh, I think I have a pattern of how to do this. We are, we're totally inept when it comes to it. It's always the first time. The second thing is, is um, we do need that script. Right. Because the biggest fear parents have is I don't want to say the wrong thing. I don't want my kid to have this half cocked mm-hmm. idea that this is true. And really that's true. And and that comes back to this. We never had it done for us. And also we're not really sure what to say because we've never been forced to describe it as specifically as you need to, to a kid. I also think on the positive end, there's something really important about having a third thing in that context. It's not just a book saying it to your kid instead of you. It's about showing that you are willing to learn alongside with your kid, that they're hearing the words just as much as you are hearing the words, which then means you are not telling them, here's the way the world works. You're learning together from a yeah. third thing. And and now you're on the same playing field. Mm. It's not not top down anymore. And then the last thing, and this is the magic of children's books, is is the context around the reading of the thing and what it facilitates. So let's let's take it off. It's typically a bedtime. It typically represents um, really intimate one-on-one time, okay, which kids crave all the time, right? Undivided attention, um, stories which kids are really interested in. Um, and and it just elongates just enough that time when you know parents are like they're tired kid knows they're tired they want to put them to bed but kids they don't want to go to bed they want that one-on-one time and they don't they sort of want to stretch out this connection they have with parents as long as they can if they're getting it and so this book by virtue of it just being 64 pages and talking about something important maybe begging a conversation just stretches out that time a little more and we were really intentional about co-opting that moment to create something more meaningful than just quality time, but a quality conversation. So I think those are all the factors that are at play. And I suppose, like last but not least, is parents walk away going, oh, wow, I kind of learned something. <laughs> like, that's new to me, right? Which is, which kids, it's like, and this is just like pro tip for every parent listening is like, 
not know some stuff, parents, like yes. show your kids that you're learning, show your kids that you don't know stuff, that you're yeah. unsure, that you have questions like kids. Oh, they love that. 100%. Right. It, it doesn't scare them and makes them go, my, my parents human and just like me. And, and maybe I'm okay if I have questions and I don't know stuff. And then the most amazing thing that can happen is you facilitate a learning together. I don't have the answer. I just learned something. Let's go learn more together. And, and like, there is no parent in existence today who doesn't wish that happened when they were a kid. Right. Mm -hmm. So transport yourself back to seven-year-old you like, oh my God, how amazing would that have felt to get that from a safe grown up in your life? I mean, God, like that would zero amazing. times. I can count that zero times I got it. Right. So it's like any time would be amazing and magical. And that, like, you know, was it Fred Rogers said, like, the biggest mistake we make is we forget that we used to be kids. Yeah. We forget our own childhoods. Yeah. And thus we lose that connection to understanding our children really deeply. Oh, I have chills. That's so true. It's so true. I talk about this a lot with my therapist that I feel like I grew up, like I, I, I um, have this idea in my mind. I call them sitcom moments. So I'm always striving to have that sitcom moment that I wish I had growing up, which was, you know, the full house, seventh heaven, the yeah, end no. of the show, they tie it all together. The parent sits on the bed and they're like, so, you know, today like they and i like i want that sitcom moment with my daughter and i and my husband calls it out he's like you know not every moment is going to be a sitcom moment i'm almost like overcompensating i make everything a learning opportunity so sometimes i have those very sit on the edge of the bed talk about things but sometimes it's through a book and what you said 100 percent true specifically i'm looking at the one a kid's book about gender i learned a lot with her as i was reading i was like i did not know there were that many pronouns I'm going to practice them. And we were sitting through that. And I was like, that's so cool. I didn't know that. And I love how the books have a lot of them have like uh, natural pauses where it's like sit and think about a time mm. where you noticed a person had XYZ or looked XYZ or did XYZ. And it really, yeah. really does the like the reflection along the lines. I'm curious because I know I've seen you uh like visit schools and essentially probably mm -hmm. do like read-alongs with those schools how is it like reading this to a group of like a larger group if teachers were to read these in their classroom how does that look with so many kids taking in at once with the pausing the conversation what kinds of how does the discussion look afterwards if you could share some of that sure well it's it's, it's amazing because it's the same every time so i visit this year i visited a school almost every other week typically two back-to-back -back assemblies. The first assembly is with K through two and then uh, third through fifth, okay, which is totally different. Um, and uh, I, I found kids are really interested in the idea of being an author. What does it mean to be an author? How much money do you make as an author? How do you write the books? How long does it take, right? Um, where do the books sell? How do you get them? How much do they cost? They're really fascinated by that because they interact with so many books, but I think so few get to interact sure. directly with authors. And for many of them, I am the first author that they meet, which blows yeah. my mind. Um, <laughs> so for cool. the younger kids, they're squirrely and they're the most engaged when I'm reading my book. Um, and they will they, like unashamed, they will raise their hand right in the middle, right? Because they have <laughs> a thought or a question they yes. want to share, which is so cool. Um, and for them, it's very easy to embrace the ideas of the book because it's structured obviously in a traditional sort of children's book format, just a lot more frank and candid. Um, and what I find is when I ask the K through two, anybody have any questions, hands, all the hands go up. Okay. Yes. What's your question? Um, I want to write a book about cats, right? It's always <laughs> statements. It's never questions yes, because they never want to share what they about care themselves. about, what they know. A hundred percent. Yep. Which is, which is, uh, I, I love, um, uh, now third through fifth, they'll ask really challenging questions and dig into certain parts. Have you ever faced backlash for your book? Um, you know, uh, do you write all of the books or do you do other people write the books? You know, um, I had a high schooler, you know, tell me, is there, is there too far? Is there too early and too far with some topics? Are they yeah. some too scary? And I thought that's really, mm. it's a brave question to ask, right? Yeah. Um, I end my time in the same way every time. And this happened organically because kids will just do this is um, I'll have them pitch me books because as soon as they see my book, 
And as soon as they hear it, they go, it's sort of like this, like, oh, I can do that. I know about mm-hmm. some stuff. Uh-huh. Uh, it makes it very accessible. And so I'll, I'll end my time with going, now I want you to pitch me a book of a thing that you care a lot about, that you know a lot about, that you're really close to. And you'd think it would be pitches like a kid's book about Minecraft or a kid's book about Roblox or a kid's book about candy or a kid's book about you know, going to Disneyland, whatever, right? Just fun, frivolous yeah. things. No, far from it. I have, I have heard pitches from six, seven, eight, nine-year-olds for a kid's book about homophobia, a kid's book about toxic relationships, a kid's book about losing a parent, a kid's book about, I mean, like you name it. Yeah. And, and for me, what's highlighted there is not that I've done some magic trick on kids to make them like engage with serious topics is these things occupy their minds a lot. And I, as a safe adult have just walked in and said, it's okay to bring them up now. It's okay to just mention it aloud. And I watch around the room, the teachers who are flanked on the sides, typically who are just putting out fires, trying to get some kids to be quiet, stop fidgeting, sit down, you know, stop bugging, you know, him or her. And, And I watch them go, Oh, I'm watching my kids behave in a different way. And oftentimes some of the most problematic troublemaking kids in class, right. Who's just trying to manage are coming up with some of the most thoughtful pitches And what I hope happens there is a new dimension of what it means to be at school and be a person and be able to contribute and be a good student is opened up for the teachers because I was that kid. I was always drawing in class. I was super disruptive. I never did my homework. Every teacher I ever had was like, you have so much potential, Jelani. And I just thought, (laughs) no, this stuff is really for me. Like, I really like, we really got to read this thing or write this thing. I got to work on this thing. And I wanted some of these other parts to be able to be highlighted and to come out. And it, and it wasn't until I became an adult that I I sort of found those superpowers and figured out how to make learning and schooling work for me. Um, but that's that's typically the response that happens from kids. because And that's ultimately, that's, that's what happens with my kids. It unlocked all these new conversations that we weren't having, all these new ideas, yeah. all these new thoughts. And I just thought, what happened? Like, I, I thought I was making a book about racism for them. Mm-hmm. But now we're talking about everything. And it was, it was two things. It was the vulnerability in sharing my story. Gave them the permission to be vulnerable. And two, they had their own hard stuff. So if it wasn't racism for them, it was something else that now they had the vulnerability and the courage to share. And, and, and my hope is, like my book... My book is not special and really any way at all, other than it gives kids permission to be vulnerable and have the ki- the courage to do it. And, and my hope is it continues to do that. My hope is all of our books continue to do that. And for a select few, and I, I meet these kids, it makes them feel seen. So biracial, mixed race kids, uh, they feel seen because for the very first time, somebody that looks like them is in front and a book about their experience, they just had read to them. I mean, it's like, mm-hmm. it's palpable. You can see it on their faces. And and I hope all of our books represent that mm-hmm. for a specific kid who hears that story and goes, that's me. That's my yeah. story. And I think it also takes the load off of them to see that their peers who are not mixed race or biracial or anything, to hear them, to know, witness them learning about them without myself always having to advocate or feel like okay now so my neighbors know about this they 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 must be wondering this and now they have the answer that must feel um liberating for some kids maybe aside from that also that like whole identity and seeing themselves in that person um which i think if we can segue talking to kids book about neurodiversity is one of the things that i'm so excited about um is hearing is being able to take the pressure off or at least like i envision sharing some of the load for because we we expect a lot of parents of neurodivergent kids to talk to their neurodivergent kids about what neurodiversity is why your brain works differently um but then the the bigger issue is that majority of the world are are people who are neurotypical and they don't understand neurodivergent brains and Mm. we need them to understand neurodiversity um, and to accept neurodiversity so that 
neurodivergent individuals are not always the ones that are trying to conform to society. And, you know, all of the things that we expect, eye contact, sitting still for listening, um, clapping when you're excited instead of flapping your hands or, or shaking around, all of those things that we, that neurotypical people expect, I want neurotypical kids to understand that that's not the only way to communicate. That's not the only way mm. that people think, or that's not the only way that people learn. So I, while most of my work, all of my work is dedicated to teaching, to, to supporting parents of neurodivergent kids, I think it is so, so, so impactful and powerful to know that there is this piece of literature out there, this book that can reach the masses and educate neurotypical people on how we can accept neurodiversity. And so I'm so grateful for that opportunity to do this book. I'm really excited mm. about it. Well, we... Uh... We're so glad to make it with you. And when you know I heard your pitch, it just made so much sense to me. And as a as a dad to neurodivergent kids, the thing that I was looking most forward to was was two things. One is that having my kids feel seen inside of a book to go to take that breath and go, that's me you know, and to feel represented and to feel understood, seen, known, and hear from somebody else who understood them. And the second thing is for them to watch me be on that journey to understand them, to make sense of them, and for them to point out stuff and go, see, that's why. That's why. Because for someone like me who's neurotypical, there can be a frustration in raising my children when they do something that doesn't make sense to me. And of course, what do I do as a tired dad of six kids is go, oh, well, just do what I say because I'm saying it because I'm your dad. And there's that pressure. And it 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 took me far too long to figure out, I don't know if my kid's going to do this. And it's not because they're not trying. Mm-hmm. It's not because they don't want to. In fact, I can see my kid mm-hmm. desperately wants to do this thing. It's because they're built different. And so mm-hmm. I actually need to change my expectation and the way that I look at them and perceive them. And so I say all that to go, I think, you know, just personally, this book means a lot to me and its existence and what I think it'll do for families. And and I it's it's another step further in our mission to create more inclusivity, more inclusivity in classrooms, more inclusivity in the workplace, more inclusivity in homes for the all the ways that people are built mm-hmm. and all the different ways that brains can work to be validated and accepted and and for there to be curiosity instead of criticism when it comes to that. Yes, absolutely. The curiosity piece is something that we know is inherently in kids. They're curious. But then if you as a parent don't have the language around it and the kids start becoming curious and asking questions, but then we shoot them down, like, don't ask that, don't talk about it because, you know, like, oh, don't look, that person is, you know, in a wheelchair or are they, um, you know, are using head, don't, don't point, don't stare. And then we don't talk about it versus, you know, in the book, we talk about saying, if you see someone who has a different behavior than you or learns differently than you, that's neurodiversity. And we can ask them about it or we can think that it's something different than the way that you do things. Um, but what I want all kids to know and parents to know is that we all have different brains. There's no right brain. There's no wrong brain. There's no one correct things to do things. The, the reality is that our society is created by neurotypical people for neurotypical people. And so if you don't conform to those social behaviors and the unspoken cultural norms and all of those things, then you're automatically othered then or weird and we need to rehab you or um, treat you to talk more like us and to become, so we're comfortable. That's really where the harsh reality is, is like, why do we want our kids to act like this? Because we're uncomfortable because we know, because if, if you think about when we grew up, like I, the word neurodiversity, I don't think was coined when we grew up and yeah. it was not anything we talked about. There was always, I could visualize a couple kids that were more obviously neurodivergent, but now knowing what I know about neurodiversity, I'm like, huh, I think that person was neurodivergent the entire time. Like maybe that's why they did this or they did that. And I hear so many adults who see my content on Instagram and say, 
I, one, either I didn't know there was a name for it. I didn't know I was sensory mm. sensitive the entire time. Like this post speaks volumes or some, some people just coming around and saying, I didn't find out I was neurodivergent until I was 35, 36. And like, I sobbed when I heard the words because it like put everything into place. Mm. So I like sharing those stories. Cause I think, again, it comes back to parents feeling uncomfortable especially when we're talking about neurodiversity, when if you're looking at it from a disability perspective, and I don't want my child to think there's anything wrong with them and different means bad in the parent's eyes or if we haven't learned otherwise, when we can just normalize that different is different and different is great and it's not good or bad. I I see that theme throughout so many of the books that um, I I get excited thinking that that this is really, really going to move the needle in terms of generation after us becoming more inclusive. I hope this is, mm-hmm. we have so much room to grow, but I feel like this kind of this movement that you've created is such a really, really, it's a really good um, um, catalyst for, for all of that inclusive inclusivity with the kids. Mm, yeah. I mean, that's at the heart of it. And a phrase that often appears in one of our books is is this idea that it's okay to be you and and that you are totally normal the way that you are um and and that's in part to push back at this idea like the defense of normal as white straight neurotypical upper middle class right like whatever those things are is so harmful and so absurd um that that normal is so many things and we don't have to erase all the different bits and pieces of the cultures and the way folks brain work and not seeing color and gender that we can actually go no let's see it all and let's embrace it as being normal and okay and cool and all the good things um uh as as a way for folks to just be able to get to be their whole self and um and this book i think it, it's it it'll be a cornerstone in our collection of of representing so many individuals who are so underrepresented mm-hmm. um when it comes to feeling understood and known and seen and and considered normal if you will yeah oh i love it so before we end i want to ask you where so now that we know how many books now does a kids co have do you have that uh, off the top I, of honestly your head? I, I i lose count it's it's somewhere around 110 120. oh my goodness where do you see this going in the next five ten years is there a limit is there a bigger vision that you have <laughs> now that you're like in in it and it's not just the first book like what's what's the plan if you can share with us or give yeah. us a teaser well my hope is um you know there there are a few media brands shows institutions that i really look up to that i think have shaped whole generations of children um so the mr rogers show of course um uh reading rainbow um sesame street mm-hmm. uh i'd say to some extent you know bluey um i mean god that show just it's <laughs> so it's like let's so just keep good. that show around for you know forever. i will years. watch that even without my daughter near me i will just keep watching it 100 <laughs> yeah. percent. and so i i want us to be able to be named in the same sentence as those brands as being foundational mm. to childhood for a whole generation of kids so that 20 30 years from now we'll have a whole gaggle of parents and educators and uh policy people and baristas and you name it who grew up on these books and they are more loving thoughtful empathetic inclusive um you know activist because these books these conversations were introduced when they were five instead of 25 right Mm -hmm. um so that's the big mission and i still feel like we're scratching the surface when it comes to the topics that we have tackled there's so many more so i don't know if that's 500 a thousand or more but i i'm really on a mission to make sure every niche every uh people group every uh topic subject matter whether it's challenging empowering or important 
is represented in our collection because we like to say that our books aren't for everybody. They're for somebody, somebody who needs it most. Yeah. And not like, I mean, I don't know what, what do you only plan on having 200 conversations with your kids that are important, right? Like you probably <laughs> intend on having so many more. And so that for me is, I don't, I don't think I'll, I'll quit on this work and building this collection. Um, and, and we really, we've tried to take a very long-term uh, sort of mindset on it and try and trying to almost put it out of time. So it feels yeah. enduring and classic and like it, it could have existed 40 years ago and should exist 50 years from now. Do you so think your kids will take over or be part of it or become their own authors of their own book or have they already? I honestly, I, I'd love that. And I don't know what that would look like. Um, but I, I've, I've long held the belief that I think anyone can do one of our books. Yeah. I think the question is, is what's that topic? What's that thing yeah. that they are an expert on because they've lived, they've lived the experience. And, yeah. and that's like, just back to like the dignity and the value of each person um, publishing has been considered this thing for special, unique, remarkable people mm -hmm. that only a select few get to do. And there are gatekeepers making sure only the select few, which has turned out to be like, do you have a lot of, you know, Twitter followers and can you sell a book really well? Not right. do you have something to say? And so for us, we just fundamentally believe everyone has something to say. And we've curated yeah. this diverse and amazing group of authors to, uh, share about some of the most important stories that we think exist. Well, you are definitely doing that. And thank you again for, for having that, for this opportunity. I have to say, I, whenever I talk to a parent uh, who I'm coaching and they ask about something, um, I'm, I'm more often reaching towards a kid's co library to be like, there must be a book about this and I'll mm. search it up. And hopefully eventually that will cover every single topic instead of having to uh, sift through Google posts or social media and things like that. <laughs> so thank you so much for everything that you do. And it was a pleasure to have you on this uh, podcast today. Oh, thanks for having me on. This is great. All right, everybody go get the book. The link is in the show notes. I'm so excited to see what you think of a kid's book about neurodiversity. Thank you, Jelani. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider rating it and leaving a review, which helps other parents find me as well. Want to learn more from me? I share tons more over on Instagram at the OT Butterfly. See you next time.